I want to talk about something today that is maybe a little, a little challenging, a little difficult, but it speaks to who I think sanctuary is. That when I think about sanctuary, which is to say when I think about all of you, who, who are we and, and what kind of place is sanctuary? And more specifically, what kind of charism what kind of grace is on our community to be a kind of people and a kind of place in the world? And what I want to spend some time on is, is dealing with this issue of, of woundedness. You know, a lot of times I, I hear from people who attend sanctuary that they're here because they had a bad experience. They're here because they've uh, had some wounds inflicted on them by the church. And so they're kind of on their way out. And sanctuary for a number of people becomes a kind of last stop on their way out of the church. And I think that's part of the grace on our community. It's part of the charism that we carry in the world, which is wonderful. But we do need to talk about this business of wounding and woundedness. To be human with other human beings at its heart is this ability to wound and to be wounded by one another. We oftentimes talk about the church as a place of healing, specifically healing from those wounds that we've had inflicted on us by the world. And in one sense, that's true. But if you've lived in the church for more than just a few days, you know that the church is also a place in which you are broken. It's a place where you can also be wounded as much as you are healed. And it's not as if all the breaking and all the betrayal and wounding only happens out there and all of the mending and all of the healing happens in here. If you live in the church, you live with people. And if you live with people, you suffer wounds. It's like that one philosopher who said, hell is other people. <laughs> it's not very Christianly, but we understand the impulse. You live with people and you hurt. You hurt them, they hurt you. Think about it like this, at one time or another, you are David to someone else's Saul. You're trying to care for them while they're throwing spears at you. You're trying to speak a word of peace, you're trying to sing a soothing song and they're trying to nail you against the wall. But what is also true is that you, whether you know it or not, are Saul to someone else's David like it or know it, whether or not you're aware of it, there is someone out there praying to God to be delivered from you. <laughs> Hopefully no one in this room, but it's true. This is part of what it is to be the broken people that we are in the broken world as it exists. Of course, we don't set out to wound one another, but it's a kind of inevitability. And it can often happen in one of two ways. One kind of wound in the church comes from people who frankly just grossly misrepresent God. Either by a kind of gross negligence or bad motives, they just tend to wreak havoc all around them because they simply misrepresent God. Some of us have been wounded by those kinds of people. Wolves in sheep's clothing, we call them. Most of us though would have been wounded by good people with good intentions, doing good things. And while they were representing God rightly in some ways, they were misrepresenting God in other ways. And that's much harder to navigate. 
At least when you come to recognize a wolf, you can push that aside. You can recognize it for what it is. You're just recognizing that this wound comes from someone who was taking God's name in vain. But coming to terms with the reality that there were some people who were taking care of you with their left hand and wounding you with their right, and they don't mean to, but they are anyway, that's much more difficult to come to terms with. Some of this gets experienced even within our own families, that we are raised and we're nourished by people who love us and care for us, and they instill certain values in us. But then years later, it seems as though they act contrary to all those values they instilled in you as a child. Again, this is just part of the tragic nature of existing in this world as human beings living alongside other human beings. Of course, there are others who are wounded outside of the church. We see uh, an example of this in, in Gideon. If you remember the story of Gideon, he's there threshing wheat and this angel appears to him and says, Gideon, you mighty man of war, God is with you. And Gideon has, just kind of smirks and says, God is with us? I haven't seen much evidence of God being with us. Where is the God of our fathers? He asks this angel. Where are the miracles that I've heard people talk about? So Gideon suffers from the faithlessness of his fathers. He doesn't know God and doesn't have any sense that God is with him. And that's a kind of wound. And today in our Old Testament text, the story that I want to spend some time with uh, you all today is this story of Abraham and Isaac. And we're going to see the suffering from the faithfulness of Isaac's father, Abraham. One last little note in this introduction. It's hard for us to remember that this story, the story of Abraham and, and, and binding Isaac, this moment of him sacrificing his son almost, that it, it's a story that has a narrator. This is a story that's being told to us. Someone is, is telling us this story from the outside. And it's also important to remember that this scene of Abraham binding Isaac is one scene in a, a larger story. Outside the text that we're given today as part of the lectionary. So if you go and you hunt down the lectionary text for today and what we talk about today and you say that oh, these don't really line up, that's why. We're going to back up a little bit to give some context that we're going to touch on today's lectionary. And then we're going to talk about the repercussions and what this looks like in Isaac's life. So we back up just a little bit to the final verse of Genesis 21. It says, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham resided as an alien many days in the land of the Philistines. So the opening scene of this story that we're given is the story of Abraham planting a tree, calling on the name of the Lord. And then we pick up in chapter 22, where our lectionary begins today. After these things, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. So right out of the gate, this story should knock us off balance a little bit. Because here the text says that God tested Abraham. 
But we know that James tells us that God tests no one. It says, let no one say when he is tempted that he is tempted of God, for God tempts no one. Of course, in English, we make this distinction between tempting and testing. So we say that God tempts no one, but he does test us, which is a very comforting thing until you think about it for just a second. What is the difference really? How do I tell the difference? Of course, in Hebrew and Greek, there is no distinction between tempting and testing. It's the same word, which is why the KGV, the King James Version, translates this passage as God tempted Abraham. But even if you had to hold this distinction of tempting and testing, what's the difference? If God puts you in a position where you have a choice to make and you make the wrong choice, you fall into sin and you come under the judgment of God, how is that any different than God tempting you? That's disturbing, especially when the text plainly says God doesn't do that. Secondly, it's strange that God does this now in Abraham's life. If you're familiar with this story at all, you know that this isn't the beginning of the story. We're at the end of the story of Abraham. Genesis 12, God calls Abraham out of the nation of his fathers. He says, I will make your name great. I will bless you by you. I will bless the nations of the world. It would make more sense if God were to test Abraham before that happens before God is going to call him to be the seed that's planted in order to bless the nations. Maybe God should test him then, but he doesn't. And if God really doesn't know what kind of character Abraham has, maybe God should, you know, test him before he recruits him to be the one who establishes this new nation, this new people, but he doesn't. In fact, God says at the very beginning, I know Abraham. But what's more than just off-putting or strange is the horror of what God asks Abraham to do. More than God doing something that God said he doesn't do, more than when God does something that God said he doesn't do is what God asks him to do. He asks him to kill his only son, Isaac. And we know that God is not a God who honors child sacrifice. In fact, one of the things we know that God hates is idol worship that leads to sacrificing our children. God hates that. If you want to know what God's posture is toward children, look and think about Jesus. How did Jesus interact with children? That's what God is like. That's God's posture toward children. So what is this? Why would God ask this? Why would God ask it now? of Abraham to sacrifice his son. Let's keep reading. You keep listening, I'll keep reading. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son, Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and set out and went to the place in the distance that God had shown him. If you know uh, the story of Abraham, you know that this just keeps getting more and more strange because God said to your only son, Isaac, take him, offer him as a burnt sacrifice. And Abraham just goes. Abraham doesn't do anything without arguing at least a little bit, but here he just goes quietly, comfortably. Abraham is an arguer at his core. God said he's going to destroy Sodom. And Abraham argues with God. He said, God, you're the judge of all the world and you don't know what's right and what's wrong? Abraham says this to God and lived. 
He says, for 50, will you spare Sodom? For 45, he's bartering with God for Sodom. So Abraham's willing to argue over Sodom, but not his own son. He argues with God over Ishmael. Sarah says that Ishmael and Hagar have to go. And Abraham in prayer says to God, let Ishmael be my heir. And God says, no, I'm gonna give you a son. So Abraham, he's willing to argue with God, but here in this moment, when you would expect Abraham to be most argumentative, he stays silent. He just gets up early. He cuts the wood and he sets out to the place that God has shown him. Notice he doesn't even say a word to his wife. He doesn't say anything to Sarah. Can you imagine that conversation? The text doesn't say this, but a trustworthy read, in my opinion, is that Abraham got up early in the morning so that he didn't wake up Sarah. He could get out of there before Sarah woke up. Back to our text. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place far away. On the third day. A lot of theologians, scholars, they've speculated about what those three days might have been like. Isaac, of course, has no idea what's going on. The servants have no idea what's coming, but Abraham knows, or at least he's afraid of what's coming. And with three days, for three days, he rides with that in his heart, knowing where he's going, knowing what he's gonna do when he gets there. So finally they get there and Abraham says to the servants, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there. Apparently he doesn't even want them to come see what's about to happen. We will worship and then we will come back to you. We will come back to you. There are a few ways to read this also. Is he, is he just lying to the servants? He doesn't want them to be startled. So he just lies to them. That's one way of reading it. Or maybe this is his way of voicing hope about the situation. I don't know how God is gonna do it, but somehow I'm gonna take my son over there. I'm gonna sacrificially kill him, but we are coming back somehow, some way. This is the way that Hebrews reads it, that Abraham offered his son and Abraham believed God was able to raise the dead. It continues. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son, Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, father. And he said, here I am, my son. When's the other time that Abraham has just plainly said, here I am. Abraham is responding as quickly and attentively to his son as he did to God. He responds to Isaac in the same way, here I am. Which may point to some of the agony and the anguish that Abraham is feeling at this moment. If you've seen some of the paintings of this scene, particularly Rembrandt's, it, it, most of the time they show Abraham standing over Isaac with the knife and, and his face is turned away. He's looking up to the heavens as if he's forgotten Isaac altogether as if he's only concerned about doing God's will and no longer concerned with Isaac, but that's not how this text reads. Here I am, he says to his son, here I am. He's attentive to him. And Isaac asks, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? 
Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb. Again, there's more than one way to read this. Maybe this is Abraham's way of saying God has provided Isaac. You are the lamb. Maybe this is Abraham still holding out in belief that in spite of what's about to take place, God is going to do something I don't see yet to save me from this. Somehow God will provide. So the two of them walked on together. The text says, when they came to the place that God had shown him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Notice we're not given any insight into how they're feeling. We're not told anything about what, what the, their conversations are, if they're saying anything. We're not told anything about the, the tension in that space. We're just told Abraham gets to work. And I think it's because we're supposed to supply the thoughts here. We're supposed to supply the feelings and the responses. What must it have been like in that moment when Isaac realizes that the reason there's no lamb is because I am the sacrifice. When this man, his father starts to wrap the cords around him, what must they have said to each other? What must that have been like? Was, was Isaac pleading with Abraham? Was Abraham offering words of comfort, telling him it's going to be okay? Was there a playfulness and that that's how Abraham gets Isaac to go along with what's happening? Is Abraham making this into a kind of lesson, instructing Isaac on how to bind a sacrifice and place it on the altar? Verse 10, then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to kill his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day on the Mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And that's where our text ends for today. But we have to keep going because that's not the end of the story. It continues in this conversation between God and Abraham in which God makes a promise in God's own name to bless Abraham and to make him great. And if we stop the story there, as we often do, and as the lectionary encourages us, it seems like a story of joy. A story when God comes through and God saves Abraham from doing that very thing that God seemingly asked Abraham to do. But the story doesn't stop there. Verse 19, we're told, Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba. So far, our narrator, in the run-up to this moment, he keeps telling us that Abraham and Isaac went together. The two of them went on together. They walked on together. They carried the fire and the knife. But when Abraham leaves the altar, he is alone. And commenters, Jewish and Christian, have wondered, where does Isaac go? We see him on the altar, and then we don't hear from him again. In fact, never again in Abraham's life do Isaac and Abraham speak. 
The last exchange they had was Abraham standing over Isaac with a knife. He leaves alone. Some commenters say that God caught Isaac up into heaven to give him a kind of respite, a reward that he definitely would have, <laughs> would have deserved. Others say that he fled into the wilderness to pray, and that makes sense too. As one preacher said, he may not have been angry with his father, but I doubt he went camping with his father any time after that. <laughs> There's a line of reading from both Jewish and Christian interpreters that this is an idea it, that he flees from the mountain in confusion and anger. That he runs off, not into heaven and not into prayer, but into the desert in despair. Who is this person? Who is this God who tells him to do something like this? Who is this father that just goes along with that kind of command? Who is my father? Who is the God of my father? That reading is not as cheerful. Isaac disappears and that's not the end of it. Abraham, we're told again and again, returns to Beersheba. And then the next scene, Genesis 23, is the story of Sarah, his wife, dying. Verse one, Sarah lived 127 years. This was the length of Sarah's life. And Sarah died in what is now Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Again, if we read uncarefully, we won't see what the storyteller is saying to us. They're telling us subtly, but still telling us that Sarah died in another place from where Abraham was living. Abraham, again, we're told again and again, is living where? In Beersheba. The story tells us again and again. And when he left Beersheba with Isaac, Sarah was there. But when she dies, she dies in Hebron. And Abraham goes to Hebron to mourn her death. Again, we don't know why she dies in another place. Why doesn't she die in Beersheba in the place where Abraham lives? So again, Jewish and Christian commentators and interpreters have to speculate what happened to Sarah. Some of them say that the moment she woke up and realized that Abraham and Isaac were gone, she left, that she'd had enough. She had forsaken her family, her homeland to follow this Abraham character who's been leading her around, following this God who speaks to him. She had seen him betray her. Remember, Abraham lied to Pharaoh when Pharaoh saw Sarah. He says, she's not my wife, she's my sister. You can have her. She's been with him through it all. And this is just the last straw. Other commentators say that she stayed until Abraham returned without Isaac. And then when Abraham explains what happens, she left. We don't know what happens. All we know is that she dies in another place and Abraham goes to mourn her. Remember, Abraham is the father of faith. He's living faithfully. And what's coming from his faithfulness is the brokenness of his own family. He's already sent Ishmael away, his first son. And stunningly, Abraham will have other children after Isaac. And you know what he does? He sends them all away. Every child Abraham has, he sends them away. This is the father of faith. 
That's not how this story is supposed to go. But there is something about the brokenness of this world that even when people are being as faithful as they know how to be, there's fallout. There is brokenness that results. So Abraham says, as he's dying, he says to his servant, go and find a wife for my son, for Isaac. Again, if you're paying attention, Abraham has to say it to his servant because his son's not there. Isaac's not with him. So Abraham sends his servant to find a wife. And of course, that's the story of Rebekah. At the end of chapter 24 in Genesis, we get this story of Rebekah and Isaac. Now Isaac had settled in the Negeb. Isaac went out in the evening to walk in the field and looking up, he saw camels coming and Rebekah looked up. And when she saw Isaac, she slipped quickly from the camel and said to the servant, who is this man over there walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, it is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. And then Isaac brought her into his mother's tent. Where has Isaac been living? in his mother's tent. And the text says he took Rebekah and she became his wife and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. This is a man, Isaac, in deep, deep anguish. He's estranged from his father. He's living in the tent of his dead mother who lived in estrangement from her husband, his father. And Rebekah begins that place of healing, that process of healing for Isaac. Again, the text said, Isaac was comforted. Let me say this, that's part of what it means for us to be the church in the world. For us to see the Isaacs among us and to comfort them, to identify the people who were wounded by those who were trying to be faithful. That's who sanctuary is supposed to be. To recognize people's anguish and their brokenness, to bind those wounds as best as we can and do everything we can to comfort them. Some of you are sitting here today living in your mother's tent, if you know what I mean. We have to see that. We have to notice that. Isaac is comforted after his mother's death. And shortly after that moment, Abraham dies. And Isaac and Ishmael reunite at his father's grave. One of the Jewish interpreters say that they dance at his grave and said to each other, here is the man who cast us both away. That's not how we like to think about the father of faith. That the one who leaves all to follow the voice of God and in the end dies alone without his wife or any of his children. And his children stand at his grave and say, this is the man who cast us away. Now the biblical text doesn't tell us what they say, but it does say that they reunite there at his grave. And then Isaac becomes the patriarch. And God says to Isaac, I will bless you just as I blessed your father, Abraham. And then Isaac begins to live out the same story that Abraham had lived. If you read the story closely, it's quasi comical because you start to realize Isaac is just reliving Abraham's life. 
Remember Abraham says to Pharaoh about his wife, Sarah, she's not my wife, she's my sister. What happens to Isaac and Rebekah? They find their way into Egypt. Pharaoh is captivated by her beauty. And what does Isaac say to Pharaoh? She's not my wife, she's my sister. You can have her. And of course, when Isaac has children, his family starts to come apart. When Jacob and Esau, we're told in the text, are at war from the, from the womb, from the very beginning, his family starts to pull apart. And he and Rebekah are even divided about how to care for these children. So he's the patriarch and his family is every bit as divided as the family in which he grew up. And then in this kind of insane scene, he starts to wander through the same spaces as Abraham to go and revisit all the same places that Abraham had been. And the text says that he's going around and he's redigging the wells that Abraham had dug. And while he's redigging them, he's giving them the same names that Abraham had named them. And you get this pattern that develops. He goes to a place, he digs up a well that Abraham had dug, he names it, and then the people of the land will fight him for it. So he moves on to the next place. And in that place, he digs up another well that Abraham had dug. He renames the well. People come and fight him for it on and on. So you're seeing this picture of a man who is being driven by woundedness. A man who is deeply unsettled, who just keeps lighting from place to place to place. And then we're told that he finally comes to a place, digs a well, and no one fights him for it. And he names it. Rehoboth, which means now the Lord has made room for us and we shall be fruitful in the land. So it seems like Isaac can finally rest. He's finally found a place, a place of peace. He's finally at home because the Lord has made room for us. And then the very next verse says, from there, he went up to Beersheba. God gave him rest. God gave him room. But that wound of his restlessness, it still needed to be healed. So he goes to the place where he was that morning when his father woke him up and said, we have to make a sacrifice. It's the first time he's been there. And you can imagine what it must be like to return to that space, to see the tree that his father planted, to remember the tents in that space, to remember the last time that his mother and father were together, to remember the last time they were a family before they set out to that mountain. And there the text says that very night, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of your father, Abraham. Do you think that sounded like good news to Isaac? It's his father, Abraham, who's wounded him. It's the, the way that his father, Abraham, represented God to him that is the cause of this deep wound and unrest in Isaac. And God appears to him. And the first thing God says to him is, I am the God of your father. But then God says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Many of you are like Isaac and you have a story in which someone like Abraham wounded you. 
They were trying to be faithful. They were trying to follow the voice of God. They were trying to do what they understood to be right. And in the process, they left you confused and alienated and afraid and unsettled. And the Lord says to you, I am their God. Do not be afraid. Because here's the thing, when he says he's the God of their father, there are a couple of things that God is affirming. One is that he was with them. He was with them. And whether or not that seems like good news at first, it becomes good news when you remember that someday you are going to be Abraham to someone's Isaac. It's one thing when I look back on my past as a child and a young kid and the people who were an Abraham to me, but it's another thing when I start realizing that now I'm a father, I'm a pastor, I'm encountering Isaac all the time, every day. And no matter how careful I am, no matter how good my intentions are, I'm going to wound my children and my parishioners. I can rest in that. I can rest in the good news that if God was with the fathers who wounded me, he's with me and he will be with my children. I can rest in that. And the other promise that's there is that he's saying, I am the God of your father and I am more than what your father represented me to be. I was with your father. I loved your father, but I am more. I am better. I am truer. I am more loving and more just and more faithful than your father could ever communicate to you. And we can rest in that because it means God is better than the representation that we've been given of God. However good you think God is, God is better. And that means we don't have to say that if God has been misrepresented to us, that's all that God is. God is more than what you've been told God is. God is more than what you can tell others God is. That's good news. We don't have the pressure of getting it exactly right. If we don't get it right and we won't get it right, God is more than our descriptions of God and our representations of God. He was for our fathers and he will be for us. Do not be afraid. And the truth is you'll never be able to live in the present or in the future until you come to terms with the past and the way that you've been hurt by people in the name of God in the past. And what God says is don't distance yourself from that. Own it. You are Abraham's son. That doesn't mean you have to stay, but you do have to identify it and own it, offer it to God. Here I am. Do not be afraid, the text says, for I am with you and I will bless you and I will make your offspring, he says to Isaac, numerous for my servant Abraham's sake. And notice what Isaac does. He builds an altar there. And the way I picture this is that he goes out to that tree, that tree that Abraham planted way back at the beginning. And under that tree, he builds an altar and says, I may not like everything my father said and did, but I belong to my father and the God of my father. And I will build an altar here. And God redeems that past for him. And he will for you. And he will for me.
And we can trust that. Do not be afraid. Amen.